You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, I'm just curious how many of you at some point in your life have studied a language other than your native tongue? Wow, that's a lot of us. You know, when I grew up, I I was uh, sent to French classes. Um, But growing up in California, I hardly ever encountered an actual French person. I probably would have been much better if I'd studied Spanish because I could have used it every single day. Um, But but for my whole education, I was in French classes and never used it. Until one day, as a young man, I found myself in Paris in a cab, the back seat, and the guy in front was a cabbie who either couldn't speak any English or chose not to speak any English, and I was tongue-tied. I know that's hard to imagine of me, tongue-tied, but there I was sitting there, and I, you know, I had the stock phrases, like I could say, you know, bonjour, uh, je m'appelle Georges, you know, charming and friendly in every way, but I can't say anything more than I couldn't actually give any instructions to how to, to, to get to where I was trying to go. It was kind of a problem. And I realize that there's a difference between knowing some phrases, being educated in a certain way, and actually being able to speak the language in a real-life situation. And we're talking about fluency. And fluency is when you have the, the competency and the confidence to actually use the language in a real situation. And our goal is to increase our gospel fluency. I know a lot of us have catchphrases from our religious education, um, but it's not enough if we can't translate the good news of Jesus into a real-life situation and have it make a difference there. So this Lent, as we gather not only in worship on Sunday, but in small groups midweek as a whole congregation, I'm trying to create for us a little bit of a language lab where we help each other acquire this competency and confidence in the good news of the gospel. You might think of your small group as kind of a meetup, you know, where you gather together to, to, to take kind of a case study approach and look at different issues that Mark presents to us each week and, uh, and ask, how does the good news apply there? In that, you know, last week, Pastor Aaron gave a wonderful sermon on authority, and that was kind of the case for us. And so I, I'm, I just joined a new small group, and uh, Wednesday was the first night I was able to join them. I was kind of late to the group, but we were talking about authority. And, you know, what does it mean to have it? What does it mean to be under it? And there are a bunch of medical people in this group. So um, someone suggested that, you know, the icon of authority for us today, or one icon of authority, is the attending physician. Have you ever been lying in a hospital bed? They, they make you wear that little gown that's like open in the back. You know, it's utterly humiliating. And then in comes this icon of authority, you know, the attending physician. She's got a stethoscope and a lab coat, like a scientist and a clipboard and just all these symbols. And it's followed by a, a coterie of a dozen little minions, right? Some of you are those minions of fellows and medical students, residents, you know, who come in and hang on every word. And you go, wow, this is really impressive, you know, and a little bit intimidating. Uh, and so, we talked about that. Well, how does the gospel of Jesus change that situation? You know, if you, if you are the attending physician or if you're the patient, what, how does it shift that experience? Then someone said, actually, the real authority in the room isn't the attending physician. You know who it is? It's the insurance company, (laughs) which gets us to today's topic, which is money, actually. So let's pull out our Bibles 
and uh, turn, please, to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a black book in the rack in front of you, and you'll find our text on page 822. If you're able, would you please stand? Let's read this passage of Scripture together. Now, as you read, please look for the phrase, good news. So that's Mark's favorite phrase. He uses it more than any of the other gospel writers. Each of the texts we're looking, we're going to look at all the places where Mark uses the phrase good news, uh, this Lent. And you might want to pay particular attention to verse 29, a little hint there. But when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. But Peter began to say to him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children's or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. What You might leave the passage open there. We'll refer to it. What do you value most? This is the question that Mark is raising for his readers. What do you value most? I got an interesting email with a super generous offer last month from a friend of mine who lives in San Diego. He writes, George, I know it's late notice, but a friend of mine has two tickets to the Super Bowl in Minneapolis uh, this Sunday, February 4th. They're box seats. He paid $3,500 per ticket, which includes the ride to and from the airport, lunch, dinner, $400 bar tab. Heaven knows I could use that. And a pass to the winner's locker room after the game. Oh, um, what he didn't realize when he bought them last year was that it's on the same day as his wedding. <laughs> Oops. Uh, so if you're interested, he's looking for someone to take his place. It's at St. Paul's Church at 3 p.m. Her name is Ashley. She's five foot four, about 115 pounds, good cook, loves to fish and hunt, and will clean your truck. She'll be the one in the white dress. <laughs> okay. What do you value most? 
right? Okay, this is what Jesus is after. Mark, his answer is Jesus Christ, right? He's a gospel writer. Jesus Christ is the most valuable thing that could ever possess us. He is the Son of God. Now, I like the way Pastor Aaron said it last Sunday in this wonderful sermon. He said it's important for us not to confuse our source from our resources. And you see that going on here in this passage, don't you? So Mark presents us with a case study that helps us revalue the goods in our lives so that we can take Jesus as our greatest um, resource, as our greatest wealth. Now, I want to... I want to help you see this case study. It's a little bit of a different approach to this passage. There's a lot else we could say about it, but I'm going to focus here on this case study. And there are two men. I'm going to call one a kneeler and the other one a follower, okay? They're both so similar, the kneeler and the follower, aren't they? Both of them have money. Uh, The kneeler is a man we typically call the rich young ruler. We get additional information about him from Luke and Matthew. We don't find out he's wealthy in Mark's gospel until verse 22, at kind of the end of the engagement with Jesus. He went away sad because he had many possessions. He's, he's got a lot of money. And also the follower. Now the follower is Peter. And he sort of speaks for the disciples in this scene. It's oftentimes it's the spokesperson. Uh, now Peter has money too. Maybe not as much as the other man, but, but note that he does. That, that uh, he's a businessman, commercial fisherman. And then when Jesus calls him, he does call him to leave his nets and he does that. But apparently he continues to own, to own a boat or boats throughout the gospels. We see him with a boat. He also apparently owns a house where he lives with his wife and his mother-in-law and so forth. So, um, both before and after, both of these men have money. And by the way, John Mark, the author of this gospel, was a wealthy man. Uh, he was from a family of means. His mother and he own a, a house right in Jerusalem where the disciples oftentimes gathered uh, to pray. Both of these two, the kneeler and the follower, are also a go-for-it, do-what-it-takes type of people. I love the way the kneeler comes running up. It's like, Give me the facts. And Peter, he's the same kind of personality. Jesus, we've left everything. Both of them are good people. Peter, you know Peter. He's a good guy. The, the, sometimes the kneeler kind of gets short shrift here. Um, he becomes a foil. And he shouldn't be because Mark describes him with great empathy. He's like us in so many ways. Uh, a good guy. He comes and kneels. He comes to Jesus. And he kneels. And this is the right person in the right posture, showing respect, piety, devotion, right? And uh, and he has been faithful. He's a child of the covenant since his bar mitzvah, since his youth, as he says. He has kept the commandments, and he's a good guy. Uh, Lastly, both of them share this in common. They're both stunned by Jesus' apparent indifference to wealth. It's interesting. Do you notice, if you look at this carefully, in verse 22, the uh, kneeler is shocked when Jesus talks about his wealth. Likewise, notice in verse 26, that Peter, along with the other disciples, is greatly astounded when Jesus talks about their wealth. I thought, this is the language of surprise. They can make no sense of this. It's so countercultural, it's shocking. They're both stunned. So the point I guess I'm trying to make here is that they're both so similar. This is really what makes this case study so interesting because they're, they're gonna, their lives are going to fork and they're going to go in such different directions. If you were to take 
these two men and set them up at a table at the foster school and say, let's do a case study on these two guys. Put them at a table, slap a $50 bill on the table right in front of them and ask them to react to financial issues. You would predict that they would both react the same way, but they don't. Now, as a fact, if Jesus were to come up to that table at the foster school, he'd have to say very different things to these two men. In terms of the outcome of their lives, he'd look at the first and he'd say to him, you know what? It breaks my heart to have to say this to you, but your life is going to be relatively comfortable and you will be what the culture around you calls a successful person. But the, but the impact of your life doesn't really go much beyond this moment. You're going to fade off into relative insignificance. No one's going to even remember your name. We don't remember your name. Then he'd look to the other one. And he'd look to that one and he'd say, and you, and no one is more surprised than me to say this to you, Peter. (laughs) You are going to be the first great leader of my movement You, together with this movement, are going to change the world. You're going to be writing part of the Bible, and they will never, history will never forget your name. And you go, wow, what's the difference when everything else seems so similar? And you know what the answer is? The good news. The good news. Look down there in your text to verse 29, where where Jesus is explicit, And Mark notices, you know, whatever you do, for the sake of the good news, that's the pivot, that's the fulcrum, that's the difference. Whatever you do, for the sake of the good news. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean to help out the good news or to help out Jesus. And I think the the English is a little bit confusing here. The the Greek pronoun there can, can equally mean on the basis of or because of, or sometimes it's just translated in our New Testament, why? In other words, when you believe the good news, you have a great reason in the foundation of your life that redirects and empowers everything else. When the good news is the basis, when you live on account of, of the basis, the good news, it, you, you reevaluate the value of everything else. This is the turning point, the good news. Uh, apparently, the kneeler has not found or heard the good news, whereas the follower embraces it. May not understand it fully here at this point. You can see his bewilderment, and yet he's open to it. Now, you can see this most clearly with the questions that each uh, man asks of Jesus. Do you remember two weeks ago when I talked to you about the difference between good advice and good news? Good advice is all about what you have to do. Good news is all about what God has done in Jesus Christ to reconcile the world to himself. Now, look at the questions that these two men ask. In verse, uh, well, the, 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 the kneeler, I forget what verse it is, he walks up to, to them and he says, it's, it's verse 17, what must I do? What's he looking for? Advice. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Wrong question with Jesus. And then, what's the the follower ask? Uh, Well, he's part of a group who asked down here, verse 26, here's their question, then who can be saved? Oh my, this is is the language of the gospel. This is one of the great words of the salvation, the healing of the nations and the world and our lives. But, But 
They're saying, who then can be saved? In other words, we're feeling at the end of our resources. We're feeling absolutely incompetent. We're feeling disempowered. Uh, We know that we actually don't have what we need to transform our lives and the world. But we look to you, Jesus. What's the good news, Jesus, effectively, is what they're asking. What's the good news? That's the right question. Mark, Mark's wanting us to be preoccupied with that question. Jesus is saying to both men, I'm trying to share good news with you. With God, nothing is impossible. I just think it's so easy to, to, to ask uh, the wrong question, especially around money in our lives uh, today. Apparently a lawyer uh, got, had, it was in a car accident. He was on, parked on the side of the road. He opened up the door of his car and another car sheared the door right off. When the police came, the lawyer was preoccupied with the damage done to his car. He was saying to the police officer, look at my BMW. Look what that guy did. And the policeman <clears throat> said, you lawyers are all the same. You're so materialistic. You're so concerned about your BMW. You didn't even notice that your left arm has been ripped off. So the lawyer looks down and says, oh my gosh, where's my Rolex? Right? <laughs> Wrong question. Okay. To get a better answer, you have to get, ask a better question. And I want to commend to you this question this morning. Whenever you think about your finances, what's the good news, Jesus? There's no better question for our financial lives. Notice this. Jesus has a look at each of these men. Did you pick this up? Look at verse 21 where Mark tells us that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He said he's looking at him, looking at him. Now, better translation for that would be looking into. It's the word for look plus the word for in or into. Jesus is not just looking at him. He's looking into him as though he were looking through him. He's looking deep into the core of his being to see what his source is. See, he does that to the kneeler. And then he does it to the disciples, to the follower as well. You you can look down the page of verse 27. You see the same language. Jesus here is looking for both men past their behaviors to their beliefs, the fundamental beliefs that will shape their behaviors. And in this sense, Jesus is encouraging us to do what I talked about two weeks ago, and that's to eavesdrop on ourselves, to listen into our internal dialogue and ask, what do we hear there? What do we tell ourselves? Is it advice? Is it news? Your answer to that question is determinative. Now, for me, my answer is oftentimes not so pretty. I have to admit to you that this is the time of year I find myself thinking about money way too much. I'm not sure why it is, honestly, the short days, but, you know, we, we write big tuition checks, uh, for two college students this time of year. Uh, we're doing our taxes and thinking about all of that. And, I, and then I have a lot of friends who, many of you go away for winter break, you know, and then I got to see all these photographs of warm beaches someplace in the world. And I, I find myself inside going, ah, oh, I'm jealous or why, you know, why can I afford a trip like that? And the answer is, of course I can, but, but I don't think so. Or, you know, can I afford to be generous or is there going to be enough money at the end of my life? Am I saving enough? And all these kinds of questions. And it, they all deliver me into this hot vat of worry. And what I'm really wrestling with is advice. What must I do? And by the way, my typical answer to that question is go out and get some more, more money and hold on to it tighter, right? It's the wrong question. 
But I wonder about you. What, what happens when you eavesdrop on yourself, when you open out your wallet or pull out the plastic, when you log into your retirement account, look at the figures, when you open up your bills on the weekend? What do you hear? Jesus wants us to speak the good news to ourselves. And I want to share with you, therefore, today, four news stories that relate to your financial life. You may not believe it, but I'm going to try to help you see that, um, that grow out of this passage. Four news stories. In fact, here's your homework this week. I'm going to give it to you in advance. And I would like you to write down these four little news stories, maybe tear a corner of the bulletin off, put it where you keep your money. Okay, wherever you keep your money, put this next in. And every time you try to pay for something this week, you're going to have to see and deal with these four good news stories that grow out of the great news of Jesus Christ. Here they are. Number one, God loves you. I'll run through them and then I'll return to them. God loves you. Number two, God provides for you. Number three, God gives you wisdom. And number four, God resources you. Okay, let me walk through those a little slower. Number one, God loves you. This is in verse 21. When Jesus looks into him, what do we read? He loved him. This is Jesus' motive towards you as it is towards him. It's the strongest word that we have in the Bible for love, agape love, God's unconditional, indescribable, indestructible love. And man, when I'm wrestling with a question like, I don't know, when I think about my money, can I afford to be obedient to God in this area of my life? <laughs> the real question is, can I afford not to? Because I'm dealing with the one who loves me more than I love myself. Second thing, God provides for you. Notice verse 24. He has to repeat himself. And the second time he does to anxious disciples, he calls them by their true relationship to God. Children, he says. Children. I want you to know, you are children of God. And one thing those of us who are parents know is that there's something absolutely um, instinctive about a parent's desire to provide for her children. I mean, there are examples where, where that doesn't happen, but that's just the, those are the examples that prove the rule, right? Parents will do everything they can. They'll give of their whole life to provide for their kids. And many of us are, are doing that, literally. And that's what God said. That's my heart too. I provide for you. If you ask me for bread, will I give you a stone? No, God says. So if I'm asking questions, do I have enough? Is there enough? The real question is, of course, the answer is, of course, there's enough. God promises to meet our daily needs every day. And then three, God gives you wisdom. Verse 21, notice the, the invitation that Jesus gives. It's not advice, but he does call this kneeler to follow him. Get up and follow me, he says. I will lead you where you need to go. I will give you the wisdom that you will need to get there. Wisdom is really important around money. I oftentimes say there are three purposes for money. Um, money is to, to give, to save, and to spend. We need to do all three of those. But how much to do, at what point, for what reason? These are good questions. There aren't simple answers to them. So we need wisdom. But Jesus promises wisdom to all of his followers. Ask, his brother says, James chapter 1. If any of you lack wisdom, ask, and God will give abundantly. But ask in faith. I, I think of this, uh, when I think of this, I think of Joseph 
in the Old Testament, you know, uh, Joseph, he, God gave him the wisdom to live with nothing and the wisdom to live with abundance. And I love the way he does that. That so that seven years of famine, he says, we're going to li- live on half of our income, save 50%. And then the seven years of abundance, we're just, we're not going to, we're then, we're going to overspend at that time. We're going to sell the grain and go into business and serve our neighbor nations around us. That takes wisdom. And Jesus is saying, I will get, follow me. I'm going to give you that wisdom. Okay. And then third, uh, fourth, God resources you. In verse 30, uh, there's the, there's the, the, the special word hundredfold. I, I will give you a hundredfold in this life with persecutions. It's not a prosperity gospel with persecutions, but a hundredfold return on investment when you invest in me. I used to think of this as Jesus is somehow trying to take something away from this rich young ruler to deprive him or call him to a, a life of deprivation. I realize now, absolutely not. Jesus is trying to give to this young man. He's trying to put abundance in his. I want to multiply your life a hundredfold. Not just financially, but spiritually, to bless you in every way, more than you can imagine. God resources us. In the world today, money is worth a lot, uh, but Jesus is worth more. That's the good news of Mark. Last week, someone in Silicon Valley said something that surprised me. He said, when you make your first million, you celebrate. When you make your uh, first 10 million, you're stunned. When you make your first 100 million, you realize it's not yours. None of it is yours. It's just too much. It has to be given. And I, first of all, I thought my first reaction was, I don't relate to you at all. <laughs> this is really weird. Um, but my second thought was, you know, how many zeros would I have to take off of those numbers in order to get the same lesson? That, that my money is not, in fact, mine. That I've been called to be a steward. And these resources are God's resources. When, when you look at the numbers on your bank statement, those are God's resources. He's, he's, and he's resourcing you. I happen to know that this man, this entrepreneur in Silicon Valley is a believer. He lives with great joy and he has lived this way from his first dollar. He's learned though, more importantly, that his money isn't actually his wealth. Jesus Christ is his wealth. I want to wind up by calling you to action, and the metaphor that I would use is the metaphor that comes to my mind because of Mark, and that is to be an interpreter. Back to the image of languages. Mark is an interpreter. A little bit of history for those of us who appreciate this. We don't actually know who wrote the Gospel of Mark. It's an anonymous work. But tradition tells us that a man named John Mark wrote the Gospel. He was not one of the 12 apostles. He was uh, an attache to Peter in Rome. He was his interpreter, not language interpreter, but message interpreter. Uh, so we read in before AD 130, the writings of a man named Papias, who says this, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, not indeed in order, Papias says, but of the things said and done by the Lord. For Mark had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him, but later on, as I said, followed Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded. Mark follows Peter through the house churches of Rome, listening to Mark share his own story of good news to these believers. And then Mark says, this message needs to get out. 
And so he takes the teachings of Peter about Jesus and makes it his own gospel. He interprets the meaning of it for a new audience in different situations. And friends, as you find yourself in different situations and different contexts around finances this week, I want you to be an interpreter, to take the good news of Jesus and draw out its meaning for that situation right there in front of you, particularly as it relates to your finances. Last year, I was invited to speak at our kindred partner church, the Evangelical Chinese Church, and they gave me an interpreter. It was a great experience. It was actually Pastor Alex's wife. Her name is Grace. I thought that was so appropriate. Grace. So I spoke English, and then Grace spoke Mandarin, and the message was communicated. In the same way, you and I need to learn how to be bilingual. We need to translate the language of money because, because we do, we do, we live our lives in, in an economy of finance, but we need to interpret it back to ourselves into the language of the good news of Jesus. And then having understood and recharacterize those financial terms in light of the gospel, we need to interpret back again out to the word into financial terms, into the economy. And I want to suggest to you that what, what, what will make us successful in doing that is allowing Jesus to speak into the core of our being and to shape new beliefs, to hear Jesus say, I love you, I provide for you, I give you wisdom, and I resource you. Let me finally point to a picture of what this might look like, because I think Mark, as he's writing this, is not writing to individuals, but to communities. That's why our small groups are so important. Do you notice in the, in the climax of this passage, the hundredfold multiplication is a communal experience? Sisters and brothers, mothers and land. You can't experience this alone. It happens in community. And the picture that we get was back in Mark chapter 6 with this familiar story of the multiplication, multiplication, hundredfold of loaves and fish. Jesus is not, as Mark tells the story, uh, kind of offering soup kitchen kind of service, fix a problem for the day. He's actually, as Mark tells the story, offering a banquet, a feast. Mark used all the verbal cues so that his audience would understand that this was an ancient banquet and that Jesus was fulfilling what God had promised through Isaiah that one day heaven was going to break open and multiply the resources of his people. And they gathered, Jesus gathers them in groups of 50 and 100 to receive this blessing. This is the in-breaking reality of God so that when God's people share what they have with one another, God multiplies it multiple times and it overflows into the community around them and there shall be no poor anymore at that time. So I just think that when in our small groups we do this together, we begin to be generous people in such a way that our neighbors who right now are not terribly impressed with Jesus, frankly, or the church, see that there's something authentic about our faith. It's not just words, but it's lives lived. And that there's good news for them as well. Anthony DeMello tells a story about a holy man who reached the outskirts of a village one night and settled down under a tree. As the holy man lay down to sleep, a villager ran up and asked for a precious stone. Lord Shiva, he explained, appeared to me in a dream and promised that I would find a man under a tree who would give me a precious stone that would make me rich forever. The holy man rummaged around his bag and pulled something out. I said, maybe it's this. He pulled out a diamond the size of a man's head. 
The villager was overwhelmed by the gift, but all night long he tossed and turned on his bed, unable to sleep. The next day, at the crack of dawn, he ran out to the tree, woke the holy man, and said, Give me the wealth that makes it possible for you to give this diamond away so easily. Peter found that wealth in Jesus Christ, and so must we. Let's pray. Oh, gracious and holy God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have withheld no good thing from us, your beloved children. Now we pray that you would send forth your Holy Spirit to help us in our unbelief that we might rightly value all the goods of this world because we rightly value you, our greatest good. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.